Welcome to the Open to Wonder podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Karen. And together with our guests, we wonder about all kinds of faith questions. Big ones, small ones, weird ones, hard to talk about in church ones. Join us as we explore how faith is formed and lived out in our everyday lives. If you've ever had the opportunity to hear Sandra Van Opstel speak or to read her work, you know that she speaks passionately and from the heart with a wisdom that is rooted in both personal experience and a close study of scripture. And if you've never heard Sandra speak before, well, get ready, because if you're like me, you're going to be taking notes and thinking about the conversation we had with her long after you've heard it. Sandra is a second-generation Latina. She's the co-founder and executive director of Chasing Justice, a movement led by people of color to mobilize a lifestyle of faith and justice. She's an international speaker, author, and activist, recognized for her courageous work in pursuing justice and disrupting oppressive systems within the church. As a global prophetic voice and an active community member on the west side of Chicago, Sandra's initiatives in holistic justice equip communities around the world to practice biblical solidarity and mutuality within various social and cultural locations. She holds a Master's of Divinity from the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and she's a doctoral candidate at North Park Seminary the author of The Next Worship and a contributor to the books Still Evangelical, Rally, Communal Prayers for the Lovers of Jesus and Justice, and Sarah Bessie's A Rhythm of Prayer. Sandra's most recent book is 40 Days on Being an Eight, Enneagram Daily Reflections. Chris and I were thrilled when Sandra said yes to sitting down with us, and the conversation you're about to hear included her thoughts on how the choices we make about what to spend, what to give, and what to keep are connected to justice, why worship without justice is not worship, and how two words can shape our practice of loving our neighbor. All that and why it would be great to have a seven-year-old in every small group are coming up now in our Open to Wonder conversation with Sandra Van Opstel. Welcome, Sandra. We are super excited that you've carved out this hour to spend with us today. Um, We've been looking forward to it, so we're so glad you're here. As you may know, Open to Wonder is a podcast where we wonder about all the ways in which faith is formed. And two of the big wonderings that are kind of framing our conversation today are what does justice have to do with faith formation and how does justice intersect with worship? So we're going to spend some time um, picking your brain about that and wondering together with you about that. But first, we want to just kind of begin with Um, a question about relationships. And we've noticed that you have a really strong commitment to mentoring next generation leaders. And so we're wondering if you could just tell us about and how a person of a different generation um, than you has walked alongside you in your life and how that relationship formed your faith. Yeah, so I, I have spent most of my <laughs> most of my uh, ministry career actually mentoring younger leaders, and I, whether it's been um, as a campus minister or as an urban project director, as a worship leader, and then eventually as an executive pastor in a church, I tend to lean towards those who are asking questions, like just mm. in my personality. And young people seem to ask the most questions. Um, they want to know why we do things. You know, they want to know if that's the best way to do things. They want to know what's missing. Um, they want, they're dreaming, you know? And so I think the nature of my personality is to, is to challenge and to ask questions and to wonder what could be instead of accept what is. And Mm -hmm. so I think that every generation, I mean, think of it, my seven-year-old, they both ask so many questions, you know? And so they're wanting to know why we do things the way that we do. And if that's the best way, and could we possibly do it this way? And so I think 
Um, at some point we stop asking as many questions. I don't really know what happens to us. So I, I think I'm drawn to that space because it, it's actually not really for them. It's probably more for me. Um, I want to keep interrogating what I believe and why I believe it. I want to bring new questions to the scriptures. Um, I want to ask who's, who's taught me this and why, um, does this work anymore for us? Um, right. And so it keeps my faith fresh. It's also why I like being around people who are exploring Jesus or curious about Jesus and not necessarily churched because they don't have, well, they don't, they don't think they have all the answers. And so um, they're constantly the the best for small groups, you know? (laughs) So um, uh, I think every small group should have like a seven-year-old in their small group so that they could be like, why? (laughs) Um, 100%. apparently, Apparently toddlers and like young children ask like 400 questions a day. Wow. Something like that. Um, wow. And yeah, it's crazy. Um, and so I have two of them. So I get asked, you know, at least 800 questions a day. Um, and I think that that is where the future of the church is found. Yeah, It's found in whether or not we can pivot how faith is lived out in our world by the people that are going to be living it in the future. Mm. Um, so I think I'm oriented that way in my personality. And I think um, the value of it is really because I mean, that's the future of our church. If you want to know what your church is going to be like in the future, look at your eight-year-olds right now, because mm-hmm. before you know it, they're 18. It sounds like, so were you raised in a culture that, because some of us were raised in a culture that didn't encourage questions or wondering about the big, the big questions. So, you know, what, what is it about your life that it what did someone's you know, in your lifetime, we're open to you saying, ask, ask those questions. Um, yeah. How do you foster a culture of that? Well, I didn't really grow up in one faith experience within mm-hmm. Christianity. I was raised by two Latino Roman Catholic parents. Um, one who was from Argentina and pretty much a European post God, you know, experience, not really too interested in church. The other from Colombia and a very, very um, religious practicing home. And so um, I think part of it was just the nature of where I was located. And then my father, you know, when I was young was like, I don't know about this expression of faith. And he didn't really actually own it either. So he was like, I need something. And he kind of started attending another um, Protestant denomination. And so I was like, why are we doing that? Why are we leaving here? Why are we? So I think the changes cause questions. I also think um, being a child um, of immigrant parents growing up as an other in a primarily white, wealthy suburb, um, it really had me asking, like, why do we do the things we do? Why? Why can't I go to someone else's house and sleep over? Why can't? I mean, there were all these things I couldn't do and I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think by nature of being different, I wasn't in a, I was not in a homogeneous space to mm-hmm. myself. You know, I was, I was other, I was outside of. Um, and so therefore I had to be like, why do they do that? Um, mm-hmm. e- even lingually, just from, from my own experience, I was sp- Spanish dominant before I was in school when I went to kindergarten, it was bilingual. I had to learn to speak English by first grade. I was speaking, I was, you know, dual language, but um, I had to really lean into like a new world. And so by, by the nature of my experience of not being a part of the majority culture of learning a new language of being raised by parents that really a lot of our customs that we do in this country are very strange to most people around the world. So, <laughs> true. Um, and so how we eat, why we eat, when we eat. Um, And so I think I was constantly like trying to orient myself Mm -hmm. because everything was so disorienting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I actually think a lot of people are going through that right now because our world has changed. Right. So Our churches were shaped for one kind of person and whether that's generational or ethnic or racial, and now the world has changed and now we're disoriented. And we're either going to pivot and ask questions like our children and like our teens, or we're going to hold on to a form of practicing faith that is so much more cultural than it is necessarily biblical. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, I, I, I really appreciate you naming that orientation need. And I think um, some of the, 
some of the things that I've seen you write, some of the places I've heard you speak, you do some of that orientation type conversation on the front end. Um, One of those is actually with the introduction video to Chasing Justice. Um, It opens with these three sentences, which I think are about orientation. Justice is not about you. Justice is not about me. It's about collectively asking what kind of difference can we make in the world? And that, to me, sounds like an orientation type thing. It's orienting away from different views of justice and saying, here's what justice is. I'm wondering if you can unpack that a little bit more. Why this emphasis on justice as a collective engagement, what we can do together? Well, that's a good question. I don't even remember saying that. Uh, you know, when they, <laughs> I talked for 40 minutes and then they just cut whatever they wanted. So it's out of order, too. I think they started with one of the last things I said. Oh. Um, like, in conclusion, justice is not about you. It's yep. not about me. Uh, we could, and then they just made that the beginning. Um, I, I think my experience has been um, that because we in the West, we have such an individualized faith and an individualistic, personal, private kind of journey with God. Um, it, it, it has dis, has kind of disoriented us from what scripture actually talks about, which is a, a communal, um, collective um, journey of faith that is incredibly public. Mm. And so it's, we're formed by our communities. Like I, I remember when I was studying in seminary, learning about a different sects of Judaism and how like in certain, in like Hasidic Jew, Jews, for example, they would like, they would be appalled if anybody ever said like, this was the day that I came to know God. Like I was converted mm-hmm. on this day because it would have meant that their parents didn't do their job. Yeah. It would have meant that we hadn't raised children up in their faith such that they can't remember a time without God, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember thinking like, wow, it's like totally the opposite of what I learned in my Southern Baptist, like, you know, conversion experience when I was 13, it was the opposite, you know? Um, and so I, I think that's when I was began thinking about the nature of our faith. Like if, for example, I'm writing, um, a, a, a Bible study on the, on Ephesians right now, uh, for the next worship. So it's mm-hmm. talking about solidarity and oneness. And when you look at the book of Ephesians, like there are very few pronouns in the book of Ephesians that are singular, they're plural. So when Ephesians says, you know, you are created, you know, for this purpose, um, it's not saying you, Sandra, were created for this. What's my calling in life? What's my most most people around the world don't ask that. They're just like, I'm a farmer because my dad's a farmer. I'm, you know, I'm you know, I'm a blacksmith because my dad's a blacksmith. Like nobody's, nobody historically and currently majority around the world, nobody's like, what do I want to be when I grow up? You just do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, a that question is, a, a that's a Western question. And it's, it's a, it's a question of privilege mm-hmm. that comes from a, a location of privilege. So if I'm reading, for example, with my, with my youth and with, with my teens, or even with my adults in, in small group. And I'm saying, you know, if the, if the scripture says, you know, for we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, that is plural. Mm-hmm. We, the people of God, we were created to do good works. Mm. We were created to reflect Christ in the world. We were created to live a life of compassion and love and justice. We were Mm-hmm. So it's not, what are you doing right now? And are you a justice seeker? And are you, yes, that's a part of it because we have personal responsibility with our budgets, with our, with where we shop, with how we live. But really the question is a collective one and it invites a collective journey. Um, and so I think that's what I meant. Although I didn't have, like, I wasn't, I just said it, you know, um, but I think what I meant is it's not really about you as an individual. And it's not about me as an individual. It's about us and how we work together towards justice. Um, Because for Chasing Justice, our three kind of anchor phrases are, um, you know, collective liberation, collective uh, healing and collective flourishing. Mm -hmm. And so we're thinking about that, that word in scripture um, that's used, that's shalom in the old Testament, that's peace in the new Testament. That is this idea of salvation in the book of Luke. It's the word salvation. 
this idea of deliverance, liberation, healing, flourishing, wholeness. Um, and it's, it's for us. It's not for me personally, it's for us. And I am a part of that us. So if you grew up in a culture, for example, if you're Korean American or Korean and you grew up in a culture where your last name went first, your yep. last name goes first, you introduce yourself, Ben Opstel, Sandra, yep. Um, yep. then you read that text and you say, oh, this is for us. And I get to be a part of it. If you come from the West, you say, oh, this is for me. And if I don't like the people around me, I don't have to do it with them. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's the farthest, I think. I honestly think Western interpretations of scripture are the farthest from what, from the culture mm -hmm. and the intent of the author at the time that the scriptures were written, because they're near Eastern, Middle yep. Eastern, collective agrarian societies. <laughs> so um, we have to do a lot of, we have to do a lot of work, you know? Yep. Um, so, yeah. Well, it's a, it, it, as you're talking, I'm hearing a lot of, it's not just uh interpretation of the text, it's interpretation of the cultural context we're in. And how do we, how do we live faithfully in this context? Um, and and you're naming a, a tension in this context, which is around that heightened individualism. Uh, and that that seems to how do we how do we name a biblical communal orientation in a culture that's so oriented around individualism? Uh, and that's that's in our faith too. Um, one one of the things Karen and I were talking about. Um, and, and in part um, in response to your book, Next Worship, too, but that that intersection of worship and justice, and, and you weave those together well and intentionally, but wondering what happens, and maybe if you could say something, what happens to our faith formation, our formation in Christ, when those things get disconnected? When we try to do worship and justice apart from each other, um, what what happens? Yeah, I, I think I write about this in my first, like my first attempt to capture what I believed about worship was the was the the mission of worship, which I think now is only available on Kindle. I think they stopped printing it because it's so old. But um, in there, I I'm looking at like the passages from Isaiah 61 and from Luke 4 and from Amos and basically any one of the 12 major or minor prophets. Um, um, Genesis, you know, the Psalms. Mm -hmm. um, that, that are really calling us to a, a worship of God is a lifestyle. And therefore the practices, the spiritual practices that we have, whether prayer or corporate worship or quiet, you know, devotional times or whatever we do, um, you know, service, um, compassion, all of those things are supposed to draw us to God, mm -hmm. um, and are supposed to be, um, and they're done in, in the power of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I would say, you know, what Amos says, worship without justice is just not worship. It's simply not worship. Mm -hmm. um, it's what Isaiah 58 says. You know, you can sing for me all you want and, you, you know, fast and do all these things and bow down like a reed. But, you know, what are you really doing there? So um, you could fill an arena full of smoke and lights and sing your heart out and have a great time with your friends and, you know, go out after dinner. And that's not worship. That That's just singing. So mm -hmm. um, I think wor worship, corporate, congregational, hearing of sermons, singing of songs, you know, gathering together that doesn't result in a lifestyle of compassion and love for the most marginalized mm -hmm. is a worship that has not, it's just not biblical. It's not biblical because mm. it hasn't looked at what the Bible is actually calling us to be formed in, which is to be a witness mm -hmm. It's to be the salt and light. It's to be a lamp. It's to be a light, a, a post that's, that's living in a, as a result of the coming kingdom, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then justice that's done, you know, good works, which we all should do. And, Many people from many faiths do them and many people have yep. no faith do it. Um, it's good. It's like, you know, living for the common, common good. Common you know, good. That's great. Yep. We should do it. But um, like the kind of stuff that I think I'm talking about, it's like pushing back on 400 years of systemic racialized injustice. I mean, I think that takes the power of God. I don't know what else is going to change that. So yep. when I look at like the amount of greed like the reason we still have human trafficking, the reason we have, you know, had American slavery, global slavery and current human trafficking is it is about race, but it's also about greed. 
It's about how cheap we want our clothes. Yeah. It's about how cheap we want our cars and our phones. It's about how many times we want to replace our phones. All those things are connected to um, the trafficking exploitation of human beings all around the world. Our coffee, our chocolate, I mean, you name it. There isn't a thing that we put on or put in our bodies that isn't connected to some kind of injustice. And so if you want to, you want to change a system that is profiting people. I mean, the Bible has a lot to say. About, a lot to say about that. People did not bow down in obedience and goodness and seek God and 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 turn from evil. They didn't do it because they were greedy and they yeah. wanted two and three homes. You know, like um, so. I don't know if 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 Isaiah couldn't do it and Amos couldn't do it and Deborah couldn't do it. You know, <laughs> I feel like, um, and that was in the power of the Spirit. Yep. Then how am I supposed to do it apart from the power of the spirits? So I'm yeah. just a little person. I'm just a tiny little person here. <laughs> um, so I feel that personally, there's there's no way to pursue justice and stay hopeful without some sense that there's a creator yep. that created and sustains the creation and ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for me, that's obviously centered in Christ. Yep. And and I believe that Ephesians two is is true that Jesus came to break down the wall of hostility, that there can be and will be wholeness um, someday when Jesus returns. And until then, the worship, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the sermons that we preach, the service that we do, the dances that we dance, all the things that are (laughs) a part of our worship, the Bible studies that we host, they should all be leading us to this kind of intentional hopeful longing for something better than what is here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It sounds to me, I mean, part of, part of what you're naming is, is the need to actually, actually root ourselves in, in what does scripture say about worship, but also realistically, what does it say about our need for lament and hope in the midst of (laughs) trying to seek justice in the midst of trying to change systems and structures that are bigger than us? Um, that lament and hope actually has a place in worship. Uh, and, and I think quite often we're content with the hope side, individual hope, um, but not as much room for the lament side and not as much room for naming the struggle that we find ourselves in, which when you keep going back to the prophets, that's where we end up um, uh, in those spaces where we see the struggle and the brokenness. And I think it's also the the practice of the global church. I think, mm. um, you know, you read a book like uh, it's Emmanuel Katangale, and it's like the, some the hope for Africa. Oh gosh, I had to look it up. Sorry, it'll Sorry. be in the show notes maybe for yep. you guys. But it, it's it's just a look at Jeremiah through the lens of women in Uganda and Rwanda that were trying to make sense of what was happening politically in their space. You know, like mm. I think our brothers and sisters around the world know how to do that well, and they can be mentors and teachers and professors to us in that way to help us understand, like, how do we keep going? And so you have a generation of folks that's looking at the church, at least in the U.S. and North America, going like, this is just trash. They don't want it. They don't want it. The data is out. They don't want it. And so um, we can't just go like, eat it because it's good for you. You know, like we have to we have to ask the question, well, how do we do provide for them spaces where they can process this? Because if they're outside of a a faith community that is walking with them, it's very likely they could become angry, Mm -hmm. not only at other people, but at creator. And Mm -hmm. so how do you hold that in your hands together? And so I think by looking at what Christians around the world have done to hold um, the tension of lament and hope and longing and yet being joyful and satisfied all at the same time, um, I think they become... Um, tutors for us Mm -hmm. in how to create those kinds of spaces. You know, Sandra, one of the, one one of the things we talk about the the kind of questions that we ask on this podcast, we say, you know, they're big, small, weird, and sometimes hard to talk about in church question. And, and this question, it shouldn't be a hard to talk about in church question um, because it's about loving our neighbor, but, when I watch the news and I read the news and um, it feels to me, I've been wondering a lot lately 
about how it seems like the church is just really having a hard time with what it means to love our neighbor well and what it means to love our neighbor. Um, And you mentioned a few minutes ago about the need for worship to result in a lifestyle of compassion and love for the most marginalized. So just at a real, almost practical level, we're wondering if you, can you talk about what loving your neighbor looks like in your life? Like, are there tangible sorts of faith practices or just daily practices that have helped you live into and out of love for your neighbor? And then the flip side of that, are there practices or, or patterns that you found, oh, this really is distracting me or us collectively from loving our neighbor well? Yeah, the first two things that come to mind for me as practices to love your neighbor are um, proximity and generosity. Hmm. So first of all, you just have to be near other people because you won't understand what they're going through or what you have to advocate for or or why they believe what they believe politically if you don't or if you're not near them. And for many of us, for example, in our context, working with a lot of migrants um, and um, asylum seekers, like. We just need to change the policies of our country that haven't been changed since 1965. Like, I don't know why we're doing, um, you know, why we're holding things up at the border when seeking asylum is actually legal. It's legal. It's our law. It's our policy. And we're holding to, um, you know, titles and policies that are keeping people out based off, quote unquote, health issues. When we know it's xenophobia, we know it is. Yeah. Because that's not actually where the health problems are. The health problems are in states where people don't want to social distance and <laughs> you have vaccines. Yeah. So yeah. Um, they're blaming immigrants like Australia is doing the same thing, blaming immigrants for sicknesses and diseases that are being actually, um, if you look at like the three highest states right now of COVID rates, they're not anywhere near the border. So Michigan, um, Michigan <laughs> right. is up there. Right. Number one, I think yep. one week ago. So I just, I think part of it is proximity. If you, if you were lived in my neighborhood, you'd understand this morning. I heard, um, on, a, a, a talk radio show was about tech and business, but about how like America used to be the top tech com- um, country, but now it's like mm-hmm. way, way behind other countries. And the number one reason they put on it was our lack of including immigrants because 50% of our major tech companies, 50% of their employees are immigrants or children of immigrants. And so we don't have the talent we used to have because we're not importing talent. And I was like, Ooh, and I just, I felt that for the church. The reason the church does not have talent today is because it's not importing talent. Yeah. Um, 48% of Gen Z are, are children of color. Mm -hmm. When you take it below to grade school, over 50% of grade school children are children of color in our country, but our curriculums aren't designed for them. Our speakers at their conferences are not coming from that location. So I think proximity is number one. The second one is generosity. I just think we just need to be more generous. Some of us made a lot of money during COVID. We just did because we stayed home. We didn't go out. We didn't eat out because we were afraid, you know, we didn't vacation. So instead of saying, wow, we saved $8,000 this year by not shopping and going on vacation. What do you want to do with it for Christmas? Which apparently rich people like myself, the top 1% spent a ridiculous amount of money this holiday. Why didn't people say that $10,000, that $8,000, we didn't need it. We didn't use it. Let's make it 10 and give it to this organization over here. That's working with Yep. Um, mothers and, and children at the border or um, people that are that whose loved ones are incarcerated. Why didn't we do that when so many regular working class people suffered so much during COVID? Our yep. children in our cities suffered so much. Why didn't we say, here's $10,000 to this organization to buy actual tablets for children to do their schoolwork instead of doing it on their phone in the car while they're helping their parents doing Instacart? Yeah. Mm. There's mm-hmm. just, we can be generous. And honestly, we're not generous. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 um, the data on tithing shows us that we're not generous. We like to go to church. We like to pretend we love God. We like to do all these things. We do all these rituals. And in the end of the day, God doesn't even get 10%. Yeah. And yeah. instead of training and teaching. Yeah. And that's why I like working with young people. Cause I get them when they're 18. I'm like, the Bible never says give God 10%. The Bible says everything you have. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Everything you uh, have <laughs> was given to you by God. It's, and therefore you are a steward of every single thing you yeah. have. The question you ought to be asking is how much God am I allowed to keep? Mm. What oh. is just, what is just and compassionate? How much am I allowed to keep? That's the number one question that should be happening in every budgeting class. How much am I allowed to keep? 
that flips the conversation so much. Yeah. Because every, everything we keep, everything we keep is something we don't invest in our brothers and sisters around the world who are in pain, suffering and dying of starvation. Okay. That's just, it's everything we keep is what we don't invest in the emerging um, uh, generation of black and Brown kids that are innovative and creative and have no opportunity to go to college. Mm -hmm. So instead of, Again, spending that $10,000 on some amazing thing for your house over Christmas. Why not say this is the year our family is going to start a college fund mm-hmm. for that partner church that we have over there. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what we've tried to do, honestly. Like, we're like, who can we put through college? Yeah, well, I didn't expect this. My husband's like, I got two bonuses. His, his company made so much money this year. So much, like so much. Mm-hmm. So many people up at that top 1% made so much money this year, especially yep. tech folks. And he was like, we didn't, we weren't expecting these two bonuses. What do you want to do? I was like, oh, well, who can we put through school? We yeah. have friends in Egypt that have kids that want to go through school. We have this over here. That went, and, and how fun, like what yeah. an amazing thing to do with your kids. Like, what do you guys want to do? <laughs> so, so, um, <laughs> you know, we do that with our children right now. We have a bank that has three different pockets, like three different squares. There's the share category. There's the give category. And there's the, uh, or the share, save and spend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we give them six bucks every week and they put two, two, and two in there. We don't say 10% goes in your spending. Right. In, yeah. We say two, two, and two, a yep. third goes to each of those. And so my hope is that when they're making, I don't know, you know, 50 to a hundred thousand dollars when they grow up a year, that they're able to go a third, a third, a third yeah. and start at 30%. Yep. And it sounds like you're inviting them into the conversation too and saying, well, who should, you know, like you're not saying this goes to this but inviting them to think about, well, who might I share this with? Who yeah, might I give to, this to? They get right? to pick. Yeah. They get to yeah. pick. We say, where, where do you want to do your sharing money this time? Do you want to give it to the kids, kids ministry at church? Do you want to give it to such and such? Do you want to give it to our friends that we, that we pass by on the corners? Where do you want to give it to? Yeah. Yeah. And then they choose what they want to do with the money yeah. and they write yeah. the envelope and they, so I think generosity is a way to embody justice because it's not, necessarily changing systems, but it's connecting yourself to the result of those systems. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That, I mean, that, that makes it so real. I think people, we tend to get overwhelmed and think, oh, there's all these things and where do I begin? And so sometimes people just freeze. They just don't do anything. Um, and, but- and I'm, I'm convinced that if you have proximity and if you start investing, you start putting your your resources where that you will start seeing the policies, the structures, the systems, the history that are making that a reality. And Mm -hmm. that's when you speak up alongside of them. Mm -hmm. That's when you start ending up at city hall and at in in DC and because you've, you've done the the work. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's, it, it sounds like it's relational work, not just academic research work. It's not becoming the expert at a distance. It's actually walking alongside and honoring the expertise of the people that that are going through it. Yeah. And the reality is it's because statistics don't convince anybody. Like my husband works in an all affluent, mostly white setting. I mean, everywhere he's at people, they don't even they can't even like imagine the stories that we hear on a daily basis. And he's people are not convinced by statistics. He'll be in a, you know, lunchroom and someone will say like, well, you know, people just work hard and such and such. such. And he'll say, oh, okay, I, I get where you're coming from. But like, okay, my neighbor, two houses down, she has three jobs. Mm-hmm. She can barely be home for her children. She has three jobs and she can't make the rent because in no city in the, in the, in the country, in, in, in the United States of America, is there a livable, uh, is there rent yeah. unless we increase the livable the, the, the minimum wage to a livable wage. So then he's telling his friend, you want to advocate alongside of me for a livable wage. There's a, there's something that's going to our Senate that you can, you know, like if you want her to just work hard and have her. So it's the story of like, that's a nice idea, but I actually know tons of people who work very hard. And the, the issue right now, for example, with, um, with uh, like not finding enough workers. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that is absolutely, a, it's it, it's a it's an issue. It's a pastoral issue for me. I have to know about because I have tons of people that work minimum wage jobs around me. Yep. And why would they work a minimum wage job at, at, you know, I don't know, 
Aldi or, or Wendy's or something um, to pay an absorbent amount of money for childcare. So they would never see their children. It's actually cheaper not to work. And so it's not that people don't want to work. It's that we as a country have made it expensive for people to work and to be exploited and treated poorly by their managers. Mm. So we haven't increased the, the wage the national wage with the, with the, with the rate of inflation over the years. So mm-hmm. that's not giving handouts to people that's paying people fairly. Yeah. You wouldn't know that unless you were in proximity to people, you can make whatever assumptions you want from far away. Um, and I think that's how you get involved. You tell your stories and you tell people like, I don't think anybody's like trying not to work. I think they, mm-hmm. they want to be treated fairly. Yeah. Don't you, I mean, you make like, you know, $120,000 a year. Do you think you're worth $120,000? Um, our teachers are only making 50. Hello? They're yeah. quitting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they're, they're big questions. Um, but it, but it, I, I think those type of questions as you're talking really come out of, a, um, I mean, you're saying proximity and generosity, but you're, you really rooted those even more deeply in what does it mean to be a follower of Christ in this community? What does it mean to be Jesus in the flesh in this community? And to love your neighbor, because if you're going to love your neighbor, then you have to address the things that are squashing them. Yeah. That are hurting them. Yeah. That are causing pain for them. You can't love your neighbor and say, I mean, Jesus, oh, oh, so I go well with you. You don't have a coat. You haven't eaten. You have no shoes. Go. It may, may life be well with you. Bless you. I mean, that's, that's not what Jesus intended at all. Mm -hmm. And so if you love your neighbor, it means that you are seeing them as a human being Mm -hmm. in their whole humanity, their intellectual, their emotional, and their physical, because there is no spiritual, there is emotional, intellectual, and physical. And all of those things are spiritual. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. Yeah, It's woven all in, in and through. Yeah. I'm going to shift conversation just a little bit if we can. Um, one of the, the commitments that really shows up clearly in your work with Chasing Justice, shows up in your social media engagement, um, is a priority on centering BIPOC voices. Uh, and I, I, it's, I would say from what I've seen and, and heard from you, it, it's a, a central priority. Uh, Wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that commitment, but then then maybe also say, what type of markers do you look for in a community to say that community is doing this well? They're really centering BIPOC voices. Yeah. So I think um, it, one of, I mean, probably the primary commitment we have as a movement is to center Black, Indigenous, and people of color in, in the movement of justice. And, and that's because um, so many justice-oriented Christian organizations are not led by the people who have the problem or who have the answer and solution Mm -hmm. to the situation. So they're well-meaning, doing good, and hopefully in conversation, the good ones are in conversation with us um, on how to uh, fight, but many are not. Many are not in conversation with constituents um, in the communities that are most impacted by um, and that's, you know, that's understandable. I mean, I'm, I'm an educated person, so that's how our education system tr- teaches us. Um, mm-hmm. it, it forms and breeds elitism that if you just had enough and knowledge, if you just had enough education, you too would agree with me. So mm-hmm. um, it, it doesn't actually invite us to center our voices on the margins. And so um, I just said, like, we, there are already a lot of really amazing development and relief and justice advocacy organizations out there. That, that's great. Um, I want to see one that's led by people of color. Mm-hmm. I want to see one that like is actually like our idea, our theology, our approaches. Um, because what I was seeing was a lot of um, folks, um, particularly young voices of color, being like, "That is patriarchy. That is, uh, you know, um, paternalism. That is colonization. That is, you know, white people with power. That is." But they weren't necessarily. They didn't weren't offering a different solution. Um, they just knew it was wrong. And so mm-hmm. I was like, well, what if we could offer a picture of what it could look like to be working alongside of all of God's people, but with the people that are most impacted by the injustice at the center of the solution towards justice. Mm. And so 
that's what we did. We gathered a group of people that were already working together on projects. And we said, let's create a picture of what it looks like. There's a better way to live. And it, it came at a point where like, white conservatives and white progressives were fighting, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, and this is not our fight. I'm just like, this is not even our fight. We're, we don't even fight like that because it's literally not our paradigm. It's not our framework. Yeah. Um, and so we need a new conversation. And I think we need a new conversation for all of us, but we weren't going to get there by trying to influence those spaces to change the rhetoric. And so we just said, let's Let's invite our friends and let's try to figure out a new way forward. I don't, I don't know if we're going to get there, but we're trying. So, um, and the idea is that um, people, yeah, from those communities would be the ones with the solution. I think good asset-based community development does the same thing. It says, mm-hmm. okay, there's a problem with the widows, you know, there's a problem with the widows, gather the leaders from that from that community, yeah. Acts chapter six, and you come up with the solution, <laughs> right? Um and so I think um, that's what we're trying to do is gather the leaders from that community that they would come up with a solution. I'm old, you know, I'm already in my forties. So most of my team, um, Mark Reddy, who's my co-founder with me, he's also in his forties. Most of our team is 30 and under. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because we wanted them to come up with their own solutions. We could provide guidance, kind of yep. theological foundations, a guardrails sometimes if, you know, there's a lot of anxiety hope and encouragement, but we're really hoping that they find a way forward. And my, my hope is in, in, you know, three to five years, I can just pass it on to someone else from within that community mm-hmm. and they will be able to, um, to lead it forward. So I think centering leaders of color is important because we, we um, not only know what's happening in our own communities, but we're also silenced in most other spaces. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're we're marginalized in in theological study, yeah. so we're not systematic theology one two or three. We're political theologies, which is a an elective. Mm. Um, we're not worship class. We're like diverse worship class elective. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if our classes and our voices and our perspective is always an elective, yeah. then how will the church in America and in North America? more broadly, how will it actually be able to reimagine itself when the majority of the people in our countries and in our spaces are not Western white Europeans? Yeah. Yeah. Um, The only way forward for all of us is to center the majority of the people that are coming and to ask the question, why have we taken up so much space? How can we repent of having taken up so much space and how do we create more space without feeling threatened yeah. um, with other people's presence? I, I love those questions. As you were talking, I was thinking about so so how do you how do you present this? How do you communicate this in a way that that draws people into the story, but also in some sense helps people see the reality that you just described? That um, so many times the the activities in these theological education and church structures and leadership, um, they're already centered (laughs) around a particular cultural voice, an Anglo voice, and they're already often centered around a male Anglo voice. And that, um, that centering is a smaller and smaller group of who the church is and who the church is called to serve. Uh, Yeah. And I think, I do think that's easily done through scripture because Luke mm-hmm. 14, seven says when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may be invited. Mm-hmm. If so the host invited will say to the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Mm. That is the word, that is the word of our Lord. And so (laughs) I think all we're asking for in chasing justice and as leaders of color, and I think especially young under 30, you know, Mm -hmm. Gen Z leaders, they're just saying, stop exalting yourselves. Do you notice that when you look at your bookshelf, we're not present do you notice that when you listen to your podcast, we're not present? Do you notice that when you have your, your gatherings for future leaders of the church in the U.S., every speaker up there doesn't represent the majority 
of the world that we live in? Why do you exalt yourself so? Or or you'll be humiliated. And I think that's what's, I honestly, I haven't thought about that, but that's what I'm holding on to right now. I think, (laughs) I think that white churches are being humiliated and they Mm. don't like it. And we're not trying to humiliate. We didn't do it. I'm just like, you did it to yourselves because you took the place of honor. And 90% of the church is now located outside of North America and outside of the West, including Australia and Europe. So why are we experiencing this pain? Why are we Mm -hmm. fighting back so hard to keep our place as the American church? Because we are being humiliated. And that humiliation should invite us to repentance, but instead it's invited us to xenophobia Mm -hmm. and to racism. Yeah. So I don't think people of color are saying white people don't have a place at the table. I think people of color are saying, why have you exalted yourself so much? Yeah. Yeah. Why can't we have a place at this table? Yeah. And if you're not going to make a place for us over here, we're going to create our own stuff because mm-hmm. we will not be humiliated any longer. Um, so I, 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 I think when I'm in class with my brothers who want to do urban church plantings, I'm in a doctoral program and they start talking about like moving to the city and planting churches. I'm like, awesome. What leader of color are you going to work under? Cause like mm-hmm. that doesn't work in my neighborhood. Um, and they're like, but God called me to plant it. God called me to be a pastor in the city. I said, great. Did God say to you to be the lead pastor? <laughs> oh, that so, is again, a so, beautiful that's why, question. Chris, that's why people don't like me because I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm literally like, let me, let me ask some questions yeah. because yeah. we have an associate pastor who is white from yep. the South who couldn't be more like, I mean, opposite of our community every way culturally. And he has positioned himself not in the place of honor and people love him Mm. and they, they love his preaching and they love his leadership and they ask for more because he's humble. Yeah. And so I guess that's my prayer. Now that we've talked, Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, my prayer for the church is that we would accept our humiliation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Sanders, speaking of prayer for the church, that leads me to a question I have here for you. Um, You contributed a really powerful prayer titled Liturgy of Longing to Sarah Bessie's new book, A Rhythm of Prayer, which I bought for all my daughters. And um, your prayer is super powerful. And so when I read that again recently, I thought, I wonder what Sandra's longing for the church that your kids will experience and see as they grow up. You know, you've described a bit about the church today. What is your longing for the church? Um, yeah, when your kids are teens Ooh. and young adults. My kids love church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope they're still in the church when they're teens. Yeah. Um, my longing is that they will find a community. They will find the church to be a community where they can ask questions Yeah, in the presence of the spirit the scripture and one another Mm. like they did in acts 15 where they got together and said the way we did things didn't work. Let's come ask our questions. Let's interrogate together in the power of the spirit with the scriptures as a foundation together in a diverse community and figure out what this says. I want my kids to find that because if they find that all the answers, I believe that we can get to the answers I yeah. believe it, it. That's a that is a, an invitation um, to liberation and freedom, and to discipleship and formation. I think Acts fa- chapter fifteen is the model for us of what happens when a church gets humiliated. It says, yeah. "Let us let us come together and invite God's Spirit, interrogate the Scriptures, and work across our differences to find a new way forward." Hmm. Um, that's my hope for them. That's my hope for chasing justice. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if it can happen more broadly, but I know there will at least be a remnant. That's what God promises us, mm, right? Yeah. God promises a remnant. Yep. So yep. may there be a remnant, you know? Oh, I hope my kids are there with yours. So Sandra, we end every podcast with a similar question. Um, the the logo for Open to Wonder is like this pew bench that Chris and I have carried outside of the church and into pub- a public space. And sometimes you'll find 
pew-like benches in parks where there's like the speaker's corner box and people are able to just stand on that speaker's corner box and just say what's, you know, maybe you've seen that in a park somewhere and you can just stand up there and say what's on your heart. Um, So we just want to invite you to just imagine along with us that you've just, we've chatted on the bench and now you've just felt led to go stand on that speaker's box in the park and, and just say the thing that's on your heart to anyone walking by or, or maybe who's been listening in on the conversation we just had on this bench. What's the th- one thing you'd stand up and say on that box? I think I would say there's a better way to live. Mm. I would say there's a better way to live for those of us that are in, in the church and for those of us that are exploring Jesus and for those of us that are longing for different things for the church, there's just a, there's a better way. Yeah, There has mm. to be. Let's go figure it out together. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. Sandra, thank you so much for your time today, um, for sharing your heart with us for this um, deep and and I think challenging conversation uh, and in a way that invites us to know Jesus more and to know his people more. Uh, And I'm I'm, uh, so eager for our audience to engage this conversation with you. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you so much. Open to Wonder is a podcast by Faith Formation Ministries. If you've enjoyed wondering with us, please leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at CRC Faith Formation and on Twitter at CRC underscore FFM. Please feel free to send us an email as well. FaithFormation at CRCNA. We would love to hear from you, our listeners. You can also find us online where we share toolkits and resources for growing faith. All of those links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening.